Turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want to start by talking about a parable that Jesus told that's recorded in Matthew chapter 22. It's one of these parables where Jesus uh, compares God's work to a wedding. And in this parable, the king invites people to his son's wedding, but everybody refuses. And after those invited refuse, the king sends his servants, quote, out into the roads and gather all whom they found. It's a parable about how those to whom Jesus was sent in general and by way of majority rejected him, but so God called the nations to be in relationship with him. But unlike other parables that are similar, this parable in Matthew 22 does not end there. Let me read to you the end of this story. I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's an interesting way to end this parable. Again, it breaks the pattern of other similar parables. And obviously, the point of the parable is not literally about wearing the proper clothing to a wedding. But in this parable, the clothes represent the spiritual state of the person. And the lack of proper clothing or wedding attire tells us the reader that the person does not belong at the wedding feast of the king. In reading this parable, the person without wedding clothes is someone who is not in right relationship with God. And I bring up this parable for you to picture this idea of proper clothing as a metaphor for the Christian life. Because the text of Ephesians is going to use a similar word picture that I'm going to lean pretty heavily into this morning. And it's this idea of putting off sin and putting on Christ and his commands. And the word can be used of clothing. So throughout this passage of Ephesians, I want you to picture clothing. And this idea of taking off the old and putting on the new. And it's going to help us understand what it means to leave behind the old life, the life before Jesus, and to embrace and put on like clothing the life that Jesus wants us to live. So let's begin Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. And first, we're going to see in verses 17 to 24, the old self and the new self. Let's look beginning in verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now remember, right before this passage, Paul has called the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I said back then, that verse at the beginning of chapter 4 acts as a caption for the entire rest of the book. He then spoke of maintaining unity and then spoke of the need for growing in maturity using the gifts that God has given us. But Paul continues on this theme of living a life worthy of the gospel by now turning to what it is not. So you'll notice to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is contrasted with walking as the Gentiles do. And after highlighting that he is speaking with authority, verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, he calls them to change. He calls them to not live as they used to live. That these Gentile believers must no longer live like unbelieving Gentiles. A couple ways he describes this. He speaks of the futility of their minds, which speaks to the worthlessness of a worldview that does not include God. As one author about this writes, because it lacks a true relationship with God, Gentile thinking suffers from the consequence of having lost touch with reality and is left fumbling with inane trivialities and worthless side issues. In addition to this, they are blind to the truth. Verse 18 said they're darkened in their understanding. Why? Because they are alienated from the life of God. And they are alienated because of their rejection of him. We read they're ignorant to the truth due to their hardness of heart. They have fully rejected God, and because of that rejection, they live out sin and its consequences. And similar to the picture of hardness of heart, unbelievers are further described as becoming callous. And out of that lack of moral feeling, they live out a life of sin. And Paul describes it in two ways. This life, this sinful life, this life of an unbeliever is described two ways. Number one, a life of sensuality. To use the language of our culture, a life of doing what just feels good. And this includes all of the ways that a person can indulge in a sinful way. But my favorite description here that really I think gets to the meat of the issue is that they are, verse 19, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's not greedy and practice impurity. It is greedy to practice impurity. It speaks to not only what they do, but the desire to sin and disobey God. There is this desire that is as strong as greed that calls them to live out an impure life. 
But this is contrasted beginning in verse 20 through 24. Follow as I read. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if the old way was following the life of an unbeliever, a life of sensuality and every kind of impurity, here we have the way of Jesus. They are not to walk as the Gentiles do, but in verse 20, the way of Jesus. There is nothing in the description that we read that is from Jesus. It's a great category for sin that has been a help to me. I remember listening to another pastor tell a story this way. That he was helping out another church, and in this meeting there was a member who was not acting in a godly way. And this pastor said to this church member, I don't know where you learned that, but I know you didn't learn that from Jesus. The same idea is here, verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And in verse 21, when he says there, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as is the truth in Jesus, that is a way that he is expressing confidence and certainty in the faith that they have in Christ. The idea is this, is they cannot live their old gentle life, Gentile life and claim to follow Jesus. And this leads to this great picture of conversion with two opposing actions. Believers are to put off the old self and put on the new self. Again, as I mentioned in the introduction, the idea of clothing. Just as you would take off dirty clothes and put on new clothes. We are to put away the old life the life of sensuality and impurity. Here, described further as corrupt through deceitful desires. We are to remove ourselves from our former manner of life. We are to leave behind that life and go follow Jesus. When we put that away, when we put away the old self, verse 23, we are renewed in the spirit of your minds. Notice the direct contrast with the futility of their minds mentioned in verse 17. And instead of a life full of sin and impurity, we see in verse 14, or 24, excuse me, that we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word created helps remind us that our new life is only possible through the work of Jesus, not our performance. And we are to leave a life, leave the life behind where we followed our sinful desires and live a life following God himself, marked not by sin and impurity, 
but by righteousness and holiness. Well, what does that look like? Those are big categories. What does it look like in the everyday to live a life of righteousness and holiness? Well, thank you for asking that question. Because what follows in the rest of this passage are shorter commands that help us put some meat on those bones. And we're going to see what it looks like to live like Jesus in righteousness and holiness in some more concrete ways. But as we look at this, I think you'll find it helpful to think of these, again, using that clothing metaphor. And again, this idea that I'm going to keep coming back to of taking the old clothes off and putting on the new clothes. One of the reasons I think that this is helpful is because clothes should cover the whole body. And the idea that these actions, these attitudes should cover your whole body. It's an all-inclusive part. It's not just, well, I'll act this way on Sunday. But when I go back to work, I'll act like I always did. We need to be covered with what is described here, just as clothes cover our body. So let's look at these clothings, these new clothes that we are to put on. Now you're going to see a general pattern here, and that is a description of the old clothes that need to go and the new clothes that we are to put on. So look for that pattern as we go through this. So let's first look at the clothes of truth in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If we are new creations in Christ, we will not lie. We put away falsehood. But rather, each one of us should be committed to speaking the truth. Now, Paul is specifically, even though he uses the term neighbor, which is normally referencing anyone, whether believer or unbeliever, because Paul is most likely quoting from Zechariah chapter 8, this is specifically talking about how we interact with our fellow believers. Now, obviously, this doesn't give us opportunity to lie to unbelievers. Don't think this is a loophole, okay? <laughs> but again, the emphasis on speaking the truth to one another, because if we don't speak truth to each other, why would we speak truth to other people? But we need to have the clothes of truth Friends, this world is filled with enough lies. And this is one of the ways that we need to stand out in our culture as people committed to the truth and willing to stand up and speak the truth, both with our brothers and sisters in Christ and also with the world. So put on your clothes of truth. Put away the deception and the lies and don't go back to those old clothes. Next, let's look at the clothes of controlled anger. 
in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. As we think about what this means, I'm going to say something that is simple, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. Anger is complicated. There are examples of anger from God himself. In Exodus chapter 34, where God talks about himself, and it's such an important chapter of your Bible, God is described as slow to anger, not never angry. We even see Jesus famously display anger in clearing the temple. And we're told that he was angry when people prevented children from being with him. We are to be angry about wickedness, injustice, and death, but how are we to be angry and not sin? We need to be candid about the fact that it is so easily easy to be sinfully angry. And we need to be candid about the fact that we are really good about justifying our anger. Friends, if there's one thing you need to see from here in this command to be angry and do not sin is to warn yourself about yourself and to be careful about your anger, to be self-controlled in your anger. And one of the ways that Paul communicates that to us through the Ephesian church is he puts a time limit on the anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. One of the best ways you can protect yourself from a sinful expression of anger is to not let it linger or stew. Too often we let anger fester like an infection and it grows and it gets worse. Now I want to put in a little caveat warning you from using this too legalistically to where you bully the person that you're angry at at 9 p.m. because the sun is literally going down. It is proverbial. It is generally true. Don't wield it as a weapon against somebody else. But what you need to see is that godly anger will often seek efficient resolution. You can't let, not let the sun go down on your anger if you refuse to resolve that anger with the person you're angry at. Make sure you are self-controlled and disciplined with your anger. Make sure you are angry at the right things. Make sure your anger doesn't fester like a wound. This idea is furthered by the next phrase, and give no opportunity to the devil. Feel the weight of that warning. That when you are sinfully angry, you are giving an opportunity to the devil. You are aiding his cause in spiritual warfare. Put on the new clothes of righteous anger 
And do not give Satan a foothold in your life. Let's look at the next set of clothes, the clothes of honest work. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, referencing this thief that was a part of the church maybe feels a little out of place on this list. I have not really been a part of a church where theft was sort of in our top 10 problems. And maybe it was a specific problem to the Ephesian church. One commentator points out that this may have been a specific problem in that culture for what we would call seasonal workers. And the idea would be that when they didn't have employment, that they would be more tempted because of a lack of a modern welfare system, that they would feel forced to steal in order to maintain themselves and their families. But while it might be understandable under certain circumstances, it's not right. Put away the old clothes of theft but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Part of being a new person is going the extra mile to secure honest work to provide for oneself. But what I think is more interesting for us today is the purpose of finding that honest work is not limited to providing for you and your family. Look at the purpose and the results of this honest work in verse 28. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The result of honest work and pursuing honest work is not merely providing for your family but being generous with anyone who has need. One of the reasons God gave you money and employment is for you to be generous. And I think we need to add that to our theology of work. Too often we're not thinking of how we can be generous with others. And it needs to be at the forefront of our minds if we are truly followers of Jesus. The other thing I think we can appreciate from this part of the passage is the complete transformation that happens. The person who is identified by his sin, he is identified as a thief, is transformed into the worker who shares with others. That is the type of transformation that we speak of in these verses. Let's look next in verses 29 and 30 at the close of constructive speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How we speak and communicate with one another is incredibly important. 
Listen to these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. There are few better ways to know what is in someone's heart than by listening to what they say and how they say it. Notice the standard here is the effect of our speech. Now, interestingly, this word corrupting that Paul uses in verse 29 can also be used to describe things that are rotten, such as fish or fruit, Matthew 7 and 12, respectively. We need to leave behind rotten speech. Speech that does not give life, speech that does not build up. And it's a great question for us as we examine our hearts before the Lord. Does my speech give life or does it take it away? The rotten speech is contrasted with the speech that is good for building up and that gives grace to those who hear. We want our speech to be edifying and a blessing to those who hear us. And the phrase, as fits the occasion, gives us the space to speak appropriately depending on the circumstances. There are times to be firm, times to be gentle, times to be encouraging, times to be correcting. But in every time, in every circumstance, we need to be committed to a wisdom that knows how to speak and in what way. As with the section on anger, there's another warning here. A warning that has great weight to it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This warning Paul is probably borrowing from Isaiah chapter 63, which says this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit And therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. But we need to see that this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, of making the Holy Spirit sad, is connected to speech. We can understand this to be generally connected to all the rest of this passage. But when we speak rotten words to each other, We are, in fact, grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul further describes the Holy Spirit here as the one by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It adds weight to grieving the Holy Spirit. He is the one who sealed us and guarantees our salvation. Feel the weight of the one who caused you to be born again being grieved by your behavior. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by how you live, but demonstrate love and thankfulness to him by living your new life in Christ, especially with your speech. 
The next set of clothing are the, are the clothes of forgiveness as found in verses 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These two verses have been personally important to me over the last year and a half because I have seen in our world a lot of anger, bitterness, clamor, and slander. We need to guard ourselves from this way of life. And we need to put this away from our hearts. Paul begins this list with bitterness. And I think it's an appropriate place to start. Because bitterness can be the result of unresolved anger and slander. But I think bitterness is especially dangerous because it is so easy to fall into. Similarly to what I said about anger, we are great at self-justifying our bitterness. We say we're just really concerned and upset. We need to resist daily the temptation to bitterness. Our hearts want to go back to that bitterness. Because in the moment it feels good. It feels empowering. But it's not the way of Jesus, and it's not the way to lasting joy and peace. Paul lists wrath and anger next. I think it's important that he lists anger here, even though previously talking about righteous anger. But just because there are instances where we should be angry about the right things, it does not change the fact that sinful anger is very real. Again, I want us to be warned, be careful about your anger and how quickly it can turn into sinful anger and wrath. Paul next lists the sin of clamor. Now, if I was making a list of sins, I don't know how easily I would have thought of clamor. The word translated clamor here can be used of shouting like in Acts chapter 23 where Luke uses it to describe the Sanhedrin when they get into a debate with each other when Paul brings up the resurrection. So if you want to think of clamor, think of those videos of the uh, British uh, legislatures where all, they're all harumphing and yelling at each other. Think of stirring up conflict. Think of chaotic contention. That's the old way to live. Next, Paul calls out the sin of slander. This is speaking against someone so as to harm them or their reputation, including lies and gossip. Again, this goes against all that has been said about speaking the truth. 
but also against building up one another with what we say. And finally, Paul speaks against all malice. In one sense, you can think of this as the junk drawer category. Words like this are often included in lists like this so that we can't find the loopholes. Because our hearts want the loopholes. But I think it's also important because it speaks to sinful attitudes and intentions. We can say, well, I didn't do anything. It was all in my mind. Well, that's malice. And that's a part of the old life. Again, we need to pause here and recognize how commonplace this type of behavior is. And how easily we excuse this type of behavior. We see it in our world, our churches, and in ourselves. And Paul could not be clear. We need to leave these old clothes behind. What clothes should we be wearing? Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As I mentioned before, the last 18 months in our world have been full of stressful times and difficult times. I have found this verse to be an important guide as I try to live a life faithfully in this world. In fact, I would encourage you all to memorize this one. It's nice and short, pretty easily memorized. He begins with, be kind to one another. It's a basic and clear command to treat each other well. Now, sometimes we inappropriately contrast kindness with truth, and we are not obedient to Scripture when we do so. You can be kind and speak the truth at the same time. In fact, there are few better ways to persuade someone than to speak the truth while being kind. Paul builds on top of this by calling the church to be tender-hearted, or as also could be translated, compassionate. One of my favorite times where this is used to describe Jesus is right before Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Mark 6.34 says this, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them or was tender-hearted towards them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When you look out at the people around you, do you have the compassion and tender-heartedness view that Jesus has? And kindness and tender-heartedness leads to forgiveness. When we are kind and compassionate, we will forgive others. And for there to be a godly church, there must also be a forgiving church. A couple months ago, I heard a tweet quoted from a journalist that went something along the lines of this. Our culture demands atonement but has forgotten how to forgive. Now in your own time or in a later sermon, we can walk through the wisdom about how to forgive. There are best practices to follow and misconceptions to clear up. 
But what we are concerned with here is the general process of forgiveness. We need to wear, like clothing, the process of apology and forgiveness. The bitter person will refuse to forgive out of anger and malice, but we are to be people of kindness who repent when we sin and who forgive when we are sinned against. I want to help you to grow in your desire to forgive others by the extra description that Paul gives of forgiveness. Notice he doesn't just say, forgive if you've been forgiven. He makes it explicit how we have been forgiven. As God in Christ forgave you. I want us to think about that. How has God forgiven us? And I want to give you the weak, unbiblical version first. One of my professors once told a story of his interaction with a fellow student who would frequent the uh, city's red district at that time. In bringing up God's disapproval of such activity, the man's own double standard that if his wife was caught doing the same thing, the man replied, and I'll spare you the French this week, the translation, God is good, he's bound to forgive us, that's his job. If we weaken God's forgiveness, we weaken our responsibility to forgive. Paul helps us in this by reminding us that God forgave us in Christ. It is only because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, God's own son, that God forgives us. God's forgiveness came at a great price. And that means we must not be stingy in forgiving others. couple thoughts to close up this morning. Really two basic categories. Number one, leave your old sinful life behind. Don't go back to that life. Or if you came to Christ at a younger age and like me don't really have a lot of time before you knew the Bible, don't see the clothes that unbelievers are wearing and want to wear the same clothes. Don't reject a life following Jesus for a life of sin. I hope that the description of the old life as one of malice, anger, slander, lies, bitterness, and everything else leaves a very sour taste in your mouth. You don't want that life but your heart will be tempted to go back. And what you need to remind yourself is saying, it's not worth it. One of my favorite verses for this is one I call the cucumber verse. Listen to Numbers chapter 11. This is the Israelites complaining against God. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. It always stuck in my mind because of the cucumbers, and I never thought of the ancient Israelites as eating cucumbers. But they list cucumbers as a reason to go back to slavery. And when you read that for what it is, this is how it sticks in my mind. Cucumbers aren't worth being a slave. And if they could actually hear themselves, they'd say the same thing.
There's a similar analogy here. Living that old life, that life of anger, of malice, of bitterness, of lies, is like going back to Egypt for the cucumbers. It will not lead to anything good, and it will only lead to pain. Don't go back to that life. And then secondly, put on the new Jesus clothes. The strength of this passage in all its details is the amount of these short commands that call us and show us what this new life is. And I want you to ask yourself, Are you known for building up others by speaking the truth? Do you have a reputation for kindness among those who know you? When people think of our church, do they think of tender-hearted people who are committed to forgiveness? Do people look at our lives as individuals and as a church And when they look at us, do they see Jesus because we're wearing his clothes? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words to us this morning. That we would take these commands to put away the old self and to put on the new self of Jesus. That every day we would put on the clothes of truth, the clothes of kindness, the clothes of forgiveness, the clothes of Jesus that you have called us to. That we would take these commands with ideas we can understand and that we would do the difficult work of living out those commands Too often it's not that we don't know what to do. Lord, we need your spirit to empower us to do what we know is right. And that we would leave the old sinful clothes of our life before Jesus behind and put on the clothes of the way of following Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.